I think what we notice now that we have this power price situation is just like the natural effect of selling a very widely used commodity. Basically, when it gets hot, then it's hot for everyone and everyone wants to look at it because everyone uses power. That's just a fact of life. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thangent, so let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. The podcast is brought to you by my company, Renew Energy. We're a solar energy consulting and development firm. Our website is renewenergy.com, www.reneuenergy.com. I'm excited on this episode to have Harold Overholm. He's the founder and CEO of Light Energy. Light Energy was founded in 2013, is the leading solar power purchase agreement provider in the Nordics. Light Energy has 46 solar power purchase agreements or PPA projects under management or under construction with a total of over 43 megawatts. Currently, the company is developing more than 500 megawatts of PPA-based on-site and off-site projects across Europe. Their goal is to reach at least one gigawatt of solar PPA contracts by 2025. More about Harold's background. Harold was previously a clean tech venture capitalist and advisor on solar markets to the WWF and the Swedish government. He earned his PhD from the University of Cambridge with a thesis on solar diffusion and PPA. He is a member of the International Energy Agency PVPS Workgroup on Solar Business Models, a former associate with the leading global sustainable think tank, Stockholm Environment Institute, and a former board member of the Swedish. Solar Energy Association. This was a great interview to learn more about the PPA market and power purchase agreements. There's a lot of interesting points that Harold covers. Some of them are the PPA market in Europe, how the European solar market has evolved over time, how higher electricity prices in the past year is allowing more solar. Also, an interesting trend that they're seeing in Europe, how there's more onshoring of solar manufacturing in Europe. If you are not familiar with PPAs, we actually have an episode, PPA 101, on the Solar Maverick podcast, which is episode 52 of the podcast, which we'll have in the notes that goes into more basic information because Harold and I discussed some of the many complexities of a PPA transaction. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Solar Maverick podcast. Thank you for listening. Let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I'm excited to have Harold Overholm. He's the founder and CEO of Alight Energy. Harold, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Benoit. It's a pleasure and I love the podcast. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you reaching out after listening. And, you know, it's amazing how many of our listeners reach out and how many people are in the industry doing very innovative things. And I'm really excited about this interview because it's really interesting what you're doing and innovating the European market, specifically with third party financing, the PPA structure. It would be great if you could talk a little bit more about your company, Alight Energy, we talk about in the description, but it'd be great to hear from you. A light energy, like you were saying, our mission is to make it a no-brainer for companies to buy solar power. We do this both behind the meter, so rooftop and grid connected, so like the big solar parks. And we do it through power purchase agreements, mainly PPAs. And look, I mean, this is pretty unremarkable if you're in the U.S. market, because there's a bunch of companies like us in the U.S., but in Europe, we're pretty much the pioneers of 
doing things this way in solar. So we need to be digressing here from the company yeah. pitch to the right. market description, but it's necessary to understand why we exist because the European market comes very much out of a subsidy-driven solar deployment. And the goal that we have is to lead the subsidy-free market for solar. And you can only do that if you create a customer for solar, an actual commercial customer. So for us, that's CNI customers, commercial and industrial customers. Dare say that we're one of the few solar companies in Europe, maybe the solar company in Europe that has an actual sales team. So actual salespeople, you know, skilled B2B closing salespeople out meeting companies all the time. And we're not just talking about the top buyers of solar power, we're just talking about companies in general with the power need. And we sell the idea of solar to them. Uh, we help them save money, go green. You know, do all the nice things you can do with solar. So we have about a gigawatt of projects in development. We have built around 50 megawatts. We were proud to be voted the top global seller of power purchase agreements in October by, there's a consultancy in Europe called Pexapark. And we, at some point in early October, we announced about 80 or 90 megawatts of closed PPAs within a few days. And then this magically led us to the top of that leaderboard. For some reason, October was a slow month in in PPA, so I have to admit, but yeah, we're really proud of that. So again, the mission is to lead this market in Europe to be the number one company for anyone, any CNI company looking to buy solar power, we want to be the number one leader to go to. That's a great description, Harold. So does Alight Energy actually own the projects? How is like that structured with the power yeah. purchase agreement? Yeah, we make sure to have a long-term control over our projects. We need to because that's kind of what customers expect from us. They want to not just do a deal with us. They want us to stay on and be a supplier of power for the long term. So we have to be in it for the long term. And we also believe in the long-term upside of renewables. We think you know everything from adding storage to repowering the projects. And we like to be in it for the very long term. We're not necessarily the owner of any major stake in the project, but it's more the control that's important. And usually we own some kind of slice, at least, of the equity of the project. You're one of the first companies in Europe to provide the PPA or Power Purchase Agreement product. How did you get the initial investors comfortable? Obviously, you know, in the US here, we've been very comfortable with the PPA structure for now, maybe eight years, nine years. So I remember just like how difficult it was in the beginning to educate even large banks on like a power purchase agreement. How were you able to provide that comfort? Like you're saying, it was a hassle. So we tell our customers we do hassle-free solar, but that's just because you know <laughs> we own the hassle. <laughs> yes, that's a good point. <laughs> and the investor hassle that you know that's the mother of all the hassles. Yeah, but joking aside, it was difficult, but we benefited from the US experience again because we could show that this had been done in the US. And look, I mean, solar is good because it's the same thing wherever you go, the same panels, the same manufacturers, the same structures. So we could probably benefit more from the US than many other industries where it's like lots of differences between the US and Europe. But it was still difficult. But I'm going to say today that has changed. So it's just such a market shift over the last maybe two, three, four years in what investors know in Europe about renewables. It's amazing. I can't really explain it. It's, of course, it's just a sign of the times. It's, I think it's a matter of a lot of people having done deals across the world in renewables and then maybe coming back to Europe and bring that international knowledge. But now investors is much less of a bottleneck for us. It's a little bit more knocking the door down feeling. And that's great, of course. You know, that's really, you know, not just for us, but for the whole industry, that's really, really good. So we can focus on the operational bottlenecks and just get solar out there at scale. 
Definitely. That is really interesting to hear. And I'm sure it's a long sales process to get these CNI customers comfortable with the PPA, but it's more scalable because I know you've worked with a lot of you know big corporations where they have multiple sites. When we screen our customers and when we pick our customers, we basically have two things that turn them into an ideal customer. Uh, the one thing is that they have a significant power need, of course, not necessarily the top power needs. So it doesn't have to be these like super top power buyers. They're actually quite difficult to work with sometimes. So what what we really like, someone who has a significant power need, typically across multiple countries in Europe. Secondly, that they are somewhat mature in how they buy solar. So we don't have to, I mean, early on, we really did. We met customers, we had to teach them what solar was, and then we had to teach them what the PPA was and kind of just get them to buy. And it could take literally two years. (laughs) You know, you look back at that and you think... You know, I'm really happy we had the tenacity to hang in there and get it signed. But you obviously you can't scale when you do that. And the European market is changing quickly. And we now have the luxury of having lots of customers who actually know what they want and makes our life easier. And it makes it possible for us to pick customers who are both significant power users and kind of know what they want. They've decided to go for solar and for PPAs and they're looking for it across multiple sites or multiple countries and that. I'm assuming that the PPA rate is a discount to what the customer is currently paying. Like what's a range of discounts potentially that you're offering to customers? As a general rule of thumb, we always say that any CNI customer has to see a day one or year one saving of kind of 10%. Like it doesn't even have to be maybe exactly 10%, but like let's say more than 5% up to 10%. So that's where you start because those optics of the first year and the first month even are pretty important. Like they really have to see a short-term win that's tangible. If they're sophisticated, they'll typically do a calculation of the lifetime saving as well, like an NPV, a net present value of the lifetime saving. I mean, that has to be something really significant too. That's a given, but that would be more dependent on long-term power forecasts. And maybe ultimately we all know like those forecasts might change. So it still comes back to seeing that clear day one change. I don't think it has to be more than 10% that the year one. So there's a part of the utility or the PPA market for the really big PPAs, which is kind of the utility PPA market. And that's when you do a PPA with a utility trading desk. Um, when you meet someone who's done PPAs in that market, they tend to assume that you need to be at like a 30% discount to mm-hmm. a certain future price of power, etc. Like there's this really fixed numbers that come out yeah. of the utility trading desks. But CNI customers don't really work like that. Typically, they're not that structured about, they don't have a particular risk model around power. So it's more straight forward negotiation. Like they will look at what they pay for power today. They want to see a discount. 10% is a nice discount. Then other things will matter in addition to price, like just how fast you can do this for them or that they trust you or that you can do it on multiple sites as a long-term partner or all kinds of things. So I think that's a really big difference between the CNI PPA market and other PPA markets like the utility PPA markets. Definitely. That's great to explain that because that's definitely a key thing because utilities tend to have projections that they're looking for savings versus a commercial buyer. They're obviously more sophisticated than we are in terms of power. Like they just know power very, very well. You will end up on the receiving end of the price, basically. (laughs) But I think it's challenging, though, to forecast energy prices. As you know, you mentioned it 15 to 20 to 25 years. I mean, prices have stayed, at least in the US, like relatively flat, but it seems with more electric of the grid going forward, 
that potentially like energy prices, or even now we're seeing here in the US natural gas prices going up, which is basically creating higher electricity prices. It would be interesting to get your perspective on that. And then also, is there an inflation assumption or like an inflation factor each year? Because I know Mm -hmm. in the US, a lot of corporate buyers don't really want an inflation factor because the price of energy has stayed relatively flat. So let's start with that last question, which is a good one. It's a really specific one. I love that about your podcast, by the way, that you have an audience that can appreciate the importance of <laughs> CPI adjustment clauses and PPAs. That's a... <laughs> <laughs> for sure, not many podcasts, people are talking about that. For I sure. think you might be one of the very few, but it's a really good one. That's what makes it stand out, right? So yeah, CNI customers don't like inflation adjustment clause because it's kind of open-ended. Like you don't know. I mean, what if you have super high inflation and particular year and that kind of like distorts the PPA. You know, sometimes we get away with it, sometimes not. It's something we've moved away from. In the US market, escalators have been very common, but those are fixed escalators, like a 3% yearly escalator. And that's actually not been that common in Europe for whatever reason. But we initially used a lot of inflation adjustments and now we're more moving towards fixed escalators like in the US and it's easier to explain to customers. So I think that's pretty much where the market is on that. But yeah, looking at power prices, I mean, it's difficult to forecast and a lot of the sentiment when you work with C and I customers, it honestly just comes out of what's in the power markets right now. Like if power prices are really low, like they don't care about power because they're not talking about it internally. And so it's difficult to get attention on it. But now, I mean, over the last year in Europe, I'm not sure if you follow like the European power markets, but they're going crazy. So I think yesterday was the day ever in history with the largest, like the highest power prices in Europe across all countries. So France has a lot of nuclear, like no, they had the actually highest price yesterday. It's not because the particular countries is dependent on wind or whatever. It's something structural. And my perception is that people actually don't really know. There's no consensus as to why this has happened. But some prices are now at like 10 times what they were just a year ago. And that's an extraordinary development of prices. So then when you talk to CNI buyers today, power prices is like top of the agenda internally. Even if power is like a small piece of their OPEX, there's just fear in the market. Yeah, definitely. That's really interesting because like obviously the variability, the fear of it going up, right, is always a concern for power users. So that'll be interesting to see. I'm sure it might sound like it's early to figure out like what the reasons are, but maybe over time it'll be. Yeah, but I mean, I think it's you ask three power traders what the reason is for a price point and you get three different answers. So obviously, like in any market, even the experts disagree. But when you look at the secular long-term trends of power usage in Europe, it's obviously, like you were saying, it's electrification. I mean, power usage is going up. And it's not coming down. And that's a good thing. Like, it's good for us. It's good for society. We want to stop using internal combustion engine and using EV. We want to stop fueling a factory with natural gas and we want it to be electrified. So electrification is good, but it just means that demand for power is going up. And ultimately, I think that's actually what we're seeing the product of in one or another way. Do you have any follow-ups to that? Because like, it's just something I think that's natural. It can happen with more power usage demand's going to increase. So prices naturally are going to go higher sort of thing that we're going to see, you know, things have been relatively flat. So we think this is going to go on as far as we can tell. There's no particular reason why power prices would come down to previous levels in the short term. Then there is volatility built into this market. And so who knows exactly what's going to happen in the short term. But I think just what we've been going through in Europe over these last couple of months has been a major eye-opener for CNI customers. So it's even if power prices would come down again now, they've kind of the fear... (laughs) 
has been awoken. <laughs> uh, they've just realized that, you know, like the OPEX post I had in my budget that was supposed to be one suddenly turned into 10, which is a crazy evolution of something that's supposed to be somewhat like stable. And the whole PPA market, the financial value of PPAs is ultimately a hedging value. It's the fact that you're locking something in for the long term. I mean, when you look beyond just the actual year one saving, it's a value of predictability. So this plays obviously into the hand of renewables in a very good way. And that's difficult to deny. Definitely. Like that's a really important point that you really mentioned. It's really about a hedging uh, strategy. And it was interesting going back to what you said before was that you used to use CPI adjusted accelerators, but now you're doing what's popular in the US, more of like a fixed sort of inflation factor, you know, one to 3%. What's interesting in the US, what we've seen is like, let's say there was a 2% inflation factor, depending on what the discount was, that sometimes in year eight or year nine of the PPA, that the PPA price is actually higher than the cost of electricity. But that's going to actually change over time because a lot of you know commercial buyers had an issue with that. But that's because like energy has been at historic lows, mm. which I think is going to change going forward. So you're 15, you're 20, mm. that could easily go the other way. So it's interesting, mm. though, that you're going from a fixed adjuster that customers are more comfortable with that than a CPI adjusted. Because I haven't really mm. seen the CPI adjusted factor mm. being popular in the U.S., just more complicated if you think about it. I think any customer, ultimately, most CNI customers, they have a high cost of capital. Whatever they can defer payment on is actually worth, it's worth more to them than to us to defer the payment. So in one way, you can just view an escalator as a somewhat deferred payment schedule where... That's a good point. Yeah, with our pretty low cost of capital, it's cheaper for us to accept a deferred payment than the other way around for the customer. So it's just like a logical way of it's a win-win situation between two parties with different costs of capital. I never thought about it from that perspective, but that's a great point. And that goes back to why PPAs are advantageous for customers, because they could use that money instead of owning the system to invest in their own business, to increase sales or cut costs and yeah. So, yeah, there's the money factor and the headache factor. And like, you can just not think about solar, not invest in solar, not build a solar team, no, but still get all the benefits from it. I mean, that's the simple pitch to any CNI customer. And then, if for whatever reason, you know, they have way too much money <laughs> that they're looking to invest in something, then they should go and buy solar and do CapEx. And there's always going to be those like kind of early adopter customers who do that. But the big mainstream of customers, they want the benefits and that's it. They want to think about as little as possible. And that's what we enable. That's the purpose of the whole business model. It was interesting. You mentioned this actually earlier in the beginning of the interview about how Europe was more of an incentive-based scheme, which sounds like the feed-in tariff program. And you really have pushed like the power purchase agreement. Can you talk about like that transition? And there was a time where it seemed like there was no real development of solar. Like the big European solar markets were the markets where governments created feed-in tariff systems. So places like Germany, Spain, Italy. And that's just historically how solar grew. And it started a little bit earlier in Europe than in other places of the world. So it really had to perhaps grow. I mean, like in 99, I think the Germans created the first feed-in tariff system and solar was not growing anywhere else in the world at that point. So they were just looking for a very robust way of making solar being built up. So, I mean, I suppose that was a good thing in itself that 
people often say that that was the reason why the whole Chinese industry got going and, and saw the you know the need to build out low cost panel or module manufacturing etc. So that's a great history, but it meant the whole industry was built out kind of without the customer. It became a little bit of an industry that like a construction industry and the financing industry, but where the whole offtake was very it was so simple that anyone could do it. So it wasn't anything you needed to work on. That becomes an industry with a weak muscle <laughs> in an important place. Then I think in 2015, so about six years ago, there was a ruling about feed-in tariffs in the European Commission saying that okay, feed-in tariffs are not they're actually not really constitutional. It's you know, I'm not gonna bore you with the details, but essentially the European Union as a community came to the conclusion that feed-in tariffs wasn't a good thing and they just faced it up very quickly. That left the industry in massive confusion, especially those places where there was a big industry because there'd been big feed-in tariffs and then like, what's going to happen now? And that's obviously when PPAs had to emerge or, you know, we had PPAs in the US, so it was an own concept. There'd been wind PPAs in the Nordics for almost 10 years. So it was a little bit known, but that's when the broader solar industry in Europe suddenly looked at PPAs and said, okay, we have to figure this out and have to work on this. Where the market is now is there is still a significant part of the market that's driven by government, but now that is only government buying through actual auctions. That is actually PPAs. So it's basically like reverse auctioning of PPAs. That's pretty good because it's just, you can do that or you can go for commercial PPAs. It doesn't matter. During the feed-in tariff system, in most places, actually, feed-in tariffs made other ways of doing solar more or less illegal. And I don't think that was by design. It was typically just because the policymaker wasn't really aware that there was another way of doing solar. So when they created the feed-in tariff systems, they kind of blocked other ways. Unintentionally, they just blocked other ways of doing solar. So... All right. Long story short, it's just that the European market is now at a very different place where, of course, as we all know, solar is super cheap. Interest is super high from commercial buyers. But the industry has to play a little bit of catch up in terms of becoming an industry that can work with commercial buyers because that's not... We have all kinds of solar companies in Europe. But again, we have very few sales teams (laughs) in solar in Europe. So it's been really disruptive last three years for solar in Europe. Can you talk about why maybe there isn't, you know, sales teams in Europe? Because, you know, obviously like the B2B, you know, you need obviously a big sales team to really... Yeah. On the grid connected side in Europe, as people started to switch to PPAs, I think it started out with utility PPAs. And you don't really need a sales team to do a utility PPA because you just need to call the utility and they will kind of behave as a government agency. They will just tell you like, this is the price, etc. And also... Some of the early corporate PPAs on the grid-connected side were with really big international buyers like Google and Amazon, who also, they kind of behave as utilities. They have like these really big power trading teams and they will also not, you don't need a sales team to talk to them. They will kind of even reach out to you and just say, oh, we know you're a developer. Can We'd like to buy PPA from you at these terms, you know, call us when you're ready. So that accounted for a large bulk of what was done on the PPA side early on. So I think it's just now, I mean, it's this last year that I can see other players emerging like ourselves or older players really actively trying to add true commercial skills and becoming more of a brand and, you know, do a proper reach out into the market and the positioning, etc. Because they've gotten away with not doing that this far. And that's how industries work. I mean, you look for the easiest way to do business and uh, you don't add capabilities until you have to. So it's been logical. And then you have crazy people like us who start a solar power company in Sweden without subsidies. That That's crazy. Like, But you have to be an entrepreneur to be crazy. So... Uh, <laughs> 
That's actually a good advice. I mean, this podcast is about solar and entrepreneurship. Not to go off track on this, but eventually get back to the whole entrepreneurship and your doctorate at Cambridge. But one thing I wanted to ask is like, how big is the PPA market right now in Europe? Okay, if we stay with solar here, I don't really know the wind numbers, but sure. let's stop behind the meter. We actually have pretty poor data on behind the meter. Like in the US, you have SEIA, and they actually publish really good data on exactly you know how many behind the meter PPAs are done with CNI customers, etc. We don't have any comparable data source in Europe, so we have to triangulate data ourselves and try to have a strong opinion on it. So our estimate is that behind the meter PPAs next year in Europe will be about a gigawatts. And then I'm talking both CNI and residential, actually. So behind the meter PPA is about a gigawatt next year. On the grid-connected side, it's way more. It's like 10 gigawatts probably next year, solar PPAs. And altogether, that would mean that PPAs would be about probably a third of total solar deployment in, in Europe next year. And the rest will be deployment then that comes out of the government auctions that we have or more or less pure capex in various forms and sizes. And then on the residential side, you still have a lot of incentive schemes in place in Europe. So that's the only place where you still have pretty firm incentive schemes. Definitely. That's really helpful to understand. And you briefly talked about this as well. Offsite PPAs are becoming more and more popular just in general. Like, Can you talk about how popular offsite PPAs are in Europe? I'm sure. So they're really popular. <laughs> and that goes back to the power price question we talked about. Like Power prices have shot through the roof. I mean, sure. literally like a factor 10 sometimes over the last year. So that naturally makes grid-connected PPAs very, very interesting to power buyers. And so it's a seller's market and getting PPAs at this point for us who have the skill set to process PPAs and talk to customers, it's not the bottleneck at this point to deployment. So we're just, the only thing holding us back from more deployment is access to sites to build on. When investors ask me about the demand for PPAs, I like to say that, look, I mean, ultimately the demand for PPAs is probably equal to the demand for power. You know, the more attractive PPAs are, the more anyone who uses any kind of power will want to look at a PPA. It's just power. I mean, it's not solar power. It's just power. I mean, solar is just how you produce the power. And of course, as we said, the power market is massive, but it's also growing rapidly. So I think what we notice now that we have this power price situation is just like the natural effect of selling a very widely used commodity. Basically, when it gets hot, then it's hot for everyone and everyone wants to look at it because everyone uses power. That's just a fact of life. What are some of these risks of these like offsite PPAs? Is you talking about the risks for us as a developer or more like for the customer? I'm talking more from the developer's perspective on that because... You know, like, for example, I don't know if you have like basis risk, which is a big risk in the U.S., like where you basically reconcile the energy price and there could be transmission. Yeah, you can create basis risk by delivering into one power zone, but like having your power in another zone. You can create shape risk by committing to certain shapes. You can create like a massive volume risk if you commit to some kind of baseload delivery or whatever. You can create merchant risk for yourself if you have some merchant exposure, like you're selling up to a certain point, but then you have peaks that you're not selling. So if you want to, you can create risk. I think we've been blessed, again, because it's a little bit of a seller's market at this point. We've been blessed in the regions where we are active. In Sweden, we are the largest developer of solar plants and people more or less have to come to us to talk about solar PPAs. 
So then we've just been been blessed with the bargaining power to remove risk. And I think a lot of times we just prefer to remove risk rather than optimize for price because we're in it for the long game. We don't like to build in risk into the long-term prospect of the company. Yeah, maybe that's just a simple answer. Like at competitive times, when the market is hungry on the sell side and it's the buyer's market, then risk finds its way into PPAs because that's what buyers do. They'll push risk on you. But there's no particular market practice around it. Buyers will accept very de-risked PPAs at this point. As a leading authority in the solar industry, life gets very busy. In addition to traveling the world as a speaker and for my entrepreneurial ventures, I'm a son, friend, investor, and entrepreneur. And when it comes to delivering a great sounding show for my listeners, I choose Podcast Laundry. All I have to do is record and send and the rest is done. They do the dirty work of podcasting for me. Yes, social media graphics, quotes, show notes, master editing, and much more. All I have to do is record. So if you're a busy podcaster like me with an engaged audience and want to free up your time to do more of what you you love, like going to the gym or spending time with loved ones, go to podcastlaundry.com to schedule your consultation or call 347-871-8273. That's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273. Oh, that's great to hear because I think a lot of these risks are very hard for the developer and unpredictable. So, you know, if you're de-risk the project and being in a seller's market, you're able to then go shape better terms. As a developer, because this is the one thing we do, if we would start to accept risk, we would accumulate risk in a way that it's very difficult to back up. Whereas for the buyers, I mean, they might be in the market for like one PPA or two PPAs. So even if they get a little bit of risk in that PPA, it doesn't get systematic. There's no systemic risk on their end. So I think it's fair that the buyers take a big chunk of the risks in, in a PPA. Typically, again, it's it's like, you know, who's <laughs> supply and demand? Yeah, economics 101. What I was thinking too with what you were saying is that how much it sounds like because power prices are going up that there's a higher demand for offsite PPAs. You're tending to focus on that more than onsite. Is that correct? Yeah, in terms of number of projects, we're probably uh, overweight on the behind-the-meter projects. In terms of megawatts, we're probably overweight on the grid-connected projects because they tend to sometimes kind of shoot off in terms of megawatts. But we really like that balance. And again, it comes from us working with these customers and realizing that it's the same need for them. So a lot of C9 customers will look at both behind-the-meter and grid-connected. It's kind of the same value to them. It's all about like hedging power prices and going green and these things. Then it boils down to what's most efficient for them short term like if they have really big rooftops yeah they want to look at behind the meter if not like grid connected might make more sense or it's like a staggered approach where they're going to do both but in certain like stages so i think it makes us more relevant as a supplier to be able to do both and to be equally committed to both like it's not one of them that we are hesitant to do it makes us relevant and yeah it creates also nice risk diversification from our side because these markets from time to time a little bit differently like power prices move a bit differently and so not being very exposed to one particular power price point in one particular power area is a good thing. Like you can work across both behind the meter. The cost stack behind the meter is different than the grid cost and across several power zones. Yeah, that makes sense being balanced and diversified from a risk perspective. What countries are you focused in Europe with providing the PPA product? On behind the meter side, we actually work with really big power users, typically multinational companies. So it's not like they have a particular national profile. 
what we say to them is that we're happy to deliver behind the meter across Europe. And it's a huge benefit for them because they're looking for someone to do it for them. It just reduces hassle to work with one supplier. And as long as we hit the basic return requirements that we have, we're quite happy to move across these different places on the supplier side. It doesn't mean that we're present in all these countries with the sales organization talking to local customers. It just means that we have the ability to build out the projects. That's how we do it on the behind the meter side. On the grid connected side is different because we have to have our own sites. So we really need to be present and develop our own grid connected sites. And at this point, we're doing that in Sweden. We're the largest owner of grid connected sites in Sweden. We're in the UK with about 100 or 200 megawatts in our pipeline. We're in Poland. And then we're actively looking at a number of markets, Finland and a few other Eastern markets. The fundamental rationale for us to look at a market and develop sites in it is if we see that the main way of deploying solar will be through CNI PPAs, because then we have the edge. Like we understand one of the people understand best how to set those prices. I mean, what works, what doesn't. And that gives us an edge in that market. If it's a market where government auctions are active and like a lot of sites are going to government auctions, then it's just, we just don't really have the same edge in that market. So that's how we pick the grid connected markets. Are you providing PPAs for energy storage or solar plus storage in Europe at this time? Yeah, so storage is like something it's on everyone's lips, right? Like it's sure. a trendy story. <laughs> For the past six years. Yeah, exactly. It sounds forever. <laughs> so, but in the US, I think, like I've really seen in the US how storage has become, in places at least, like in California, it's become like a viable part of the commercial deal around the PPA. And that's great. But like, that's not true in Europe. So to the extent that storage is deployed in Europe right now, it is back to the almost like the FIT system, like in very regulated government driven markets, pockets, like in the UK, that's where you see storage really being built out. So for us, like CNA customers, they kind of like to talk about storage, like anyone, <laughs> they'll just ask us like questions about storage, but they won't pay for it, like they're just not paying for it. So with that said, we're actually adding storage now to a number of sites. But then we're doing that in a very simple way. We're actually leasing out the, so we're building out the storage, but then we're kind of like renting out the storage capacity to a utility trader who has a, you know, sophisticated idea about the merchant stuff they can do with the storage. And that's above my pay grade to even (laughs) thinking about. And it's just literally a way for us to learn a little bit about storage and get comfortable with the deployment. Because as anyone, we anticipate this being important in the future, but it's not driving our CNI market presence at all at this point. So That makes sense and I appreciate you explaining. I agree with you. Storage is probably too expensive right now unless you have like someone comfortable with underwriting the variable or merchant cash flows and it sounds like you got some sort of long-term financing from that utility company, which then you're able to lease. That's kind of like a PPA. I mean, they would just be renting storage capacity from us and create a firm cash flow for us. Great. You know, that's easy for us. We can look at it kind of like you look at solar. Yeah. But otherwise, I mean, storage, ultimately the value creation is like a stack of values that you have to optimize that stack along the stack. It's pretty multidimensional. It's pretty software heavy. It's a little bit like it's difficult to be the first one to kind of bite that off. Like, you know, it takes, well, that's what we've seen in California. It took a while with a lot of people investing money in it until you kind of had that value stack running nicely and with the right kind of battery, like the market dispatch algorithms in place. And it's not us. Like, we're not going to be the software developer behind it. We're not going to be like the big value stack innovator. We would be someone that goes in and starts deploying once it's pretty clear how to do it. But then we could be early. You know, we could do it at scale, but we wouldn't, yeah, we just don't feel comfortable in that kind of development area yet. 
Yeah, definitely. That makes sense. I mean, it's a totally different business model than what you're currently in. And then there's so many, the complexity of batteries and there's so many uses. It's just, you know, it seems like it wouldn't be in your wheelhouse. There are other things to focus on. It's not holding us back. If every customer, if we were losing deals because customers said like, oh, you know, you're great at solar, but you can't deliver storage. So we're going to give this deal to someone else. Then we would run for it. But that's just not true at all. I mean, it's not holding us back from any kind of deployment at this point. So like... Yeah, and there are plenty of software solutions that you could buy that could do what you're talking about and you could develop the storage project. Yeah. And then you're learning, it sounds like, from this experience because eventually it's going to be, you know, all over yeah, the world. Yeah, we all believe in that story. It's like the, can't recall what they're called, but there's this global research project called like 100% solar wind and batteries. But like the fundamental idea that we can run the power system 100% basically on solar, wind, and batteries. I mean, I love that vision and it's a true vision. It's at the core of our thinking. You couldn't do it with just solar and wind. Like you need the B in order for the vision to work out. And so I'm a true believer in that and the value of adding that. It's just as an entrepreneur, you also kind of here and now, you have to fix your next bottleneck and move ahead, increase the flow here and now. And like, that's just my reflection. Unfortunately, storage is like, it's not right there yet. I think it's different in California or in Texas, let's say. Yeah, definitely. But as we know, like lithium-ion prices should be going down substantially the next three to four years. It'll become more economical going forward. You'll see a lot more deployments. Yeah, we hope so. I mean, we need lithium. That price doesn't seem to go down. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> but you know, I'll leave that to the battery guys to figure out where they're going to get the lithium from. So For sure. And what can the U.S. solar market learn from the European solar market? Well, that's a really good question because I've spent my career learning from the US solar market. <laughs> I've never <laughs> that's asked why I thought I'd ask you that question. Yeah, yeah. You caught me completely off guard there. Yeah, look, I don't know, actually. So I'm sure there's something that can be learned. But one thing that characterizes the US solar market is a huge amount of antagonism with utilities. Like literally every solar entrepreneur I know in the US will say some really bad stuff about utilities if you ask them <laughs> and you know, you've had this really really infected battles like you know the third party ownership battle in arizona when basically you know everyone just stopped selling solar in arizona for a while because the arizona public commission utility wasn't on a war path like you've seen that in so many places i'm not sure there's something to be learned here because maybe this is a structural aspect of how the market is created in the US and that it's a certain market structures are different in Europe. But I can just say we don't really have that in Europe to the same extent. Utilities are sometimes a bottleneck for us, but just because they're a little bit slow and like confused or whatever, they're not on a warpath against us or solar. And that just doesn't seem to be built into the market. So it's unfortunate for the US solar market. That's the case there because you're obviously as a solar developer, if there's something that always going to be true is that you will have a relationship with the grid. Like it's very difficult to think your way around that if you don't go full microgrid island solution. But you can do that sometimes in some places, but that's not going to be ever. I think that the mainstream deployment of renewables is always in some way going to be tied to the grid. I don't know exactly why that's been the case in the US and not in Europe, but maybe there is something to be learned. Maybe it's for the US, not just the solar market, but for the US to reflect on in terms of policy structures, if that 
is actually a big bottleneck to renewable build out in the US. Maybe something needs to change in, in the utility setup. I have no clue how it's supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> so I managed to come up with something there, didn't I? At least. <laughs> uh, yeah, for sure. I don't think it's an easy question to answer, but I think that's actually a great answer. I hope it gets better between the utilities and the solar companies in certain markets, especially. I think there's probably ways that definitely like states and some national energy policy to help ease the process because, you know, it's a lot more expensive like to permit or interconnect projects and in the US and say in Europe. It is like when I see LCOE numbers from the US, I'm always astonished at how this big kind of logistics component or admin component that is significantly larger than in Europe. The overall overhead cost of building solar in the US is higher than in Europe. And it shouldn't be the case. Like most of the time in industries, the US is cheaper than Europe. Yeah, something is difficult in the US in a way that it's not in Europe. That's really clear. For sure. And also the cost of equipment as well is more expensive to buy it here in the US than in Europe, especially because of tariffs, you know, on panels and things like that, which is leading to less solar yeah. deployment. So. Yeah. Yeah. We had panel tariffs in Europe, then we were able to remove them successfully uh, like five years ago and they never came back, which is great. <laughs> we just renewed the tariffs or not. Yeah, you renewed that, exactly. But we have all these very high goals for uh, renewable energy and solar in the US. But anyway, I'm going to try to stay away from being controversial on that. Like it's topic. really political. Yeah, it's a... Uh... Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because we've alluded to this before, Harold, but, you know, I thought it was really interesting to hear about how you learned about the U.S. solar market, uh, the thesis that you did when you were doing your doctorate at Cambridge, some of the people that you spoke to in the U.S. to learn about it, who I know personally, it would be great because that kind of led to me. It's really smart taking like a tried and true idea from another country and innovated it in a different location. A lot of people are able to do that in a much faster way than first writing a three-year PhD on it. So that's somewhat like it's both smart and, you know, there's something to be said for I could have probably gotten this company up and running a bit faster if I didn't do that PhD. But it was a great experience. Like, so I did the PhD about something esoterical, you know, academical. Let's not get into the details. But the geist of the PhD was like, can clean technologies, like clean energy, can it really spread on a subsidy-free basis? Is it necessary? This was a bit of a European question. But my question was like, okay, is it really necessary that the government backs these markets? And so I got the opportunity to go to Cambridge. There was a supervisor at the energy or in the engineering faculty who wanted to look at this with me. So I turned up in Cambridge and I had this vague idea and I had been in renewables a little bit before. I was a venture capitalist in renewables for a couple of years before. So I kind of like knew the uh, market fairly well. And I heard about this one company in the US called Sun Edison. And I was like, I just looked at the webpage and I was like, what they're doing seems fantastic. I wish I could more or less turn this into a PhD. But then I was kind of fumbling around in Cambridge and trying to you know, come up with the initial structure of the PhD, as you do. And I met the guy called Damien Miller, who's a solar entrepreneur in India. And I was presenting my PhD ideas to him. And he was like, oh, and for some reason, I mentioned Sun Edison. I was like, oh, the dream would be to look at kind of what Sun Edison has been doing. And he was like, oh, I know Jigar Shaw. He's the founder of Sun Edison. And to me, it was like, you know, I know the Pope. <laughs> like, <laughs> Are you going to Rome? Oh, I know the Pope. So I was like, oh, man, you know, can you put me in touch with him? And he's like, sure, I'll just shoot off an email. And he did. And Jigger immediately answered because he had sold out of Sun Edison at that point. And so he actually had time to talk. And it was such a fantastic opportunity. So I flew over almost immediately to the US and I initially sat down with Jigger for, yeah, I think I have like 16 hours of recorded interviews with Jigger. <laughs> 
it was truly amazing. Like, he's a great guy. I mean, he was such an inspiration and he was a good friend as well. He's wonderful. And he initially, when we set up the company, he kind of gave me the initial boost of confidence to do it as well. Based on him and how he explained the market to me, I was able to find a lot of other people to talk to, a lot of other entrepreneurs and just discover the whole US market, the way it's grown. So yeah, Jigger was the opening and he became kind of truly a cornerstone of like that whole PhD work. And ultimately for me, the PhD was like, yeah, I could just confirm also on an academic level and it became a couple of research papers that they're actually well quoted. They're out there somewhere in the <laughs> academic. But kind of just proving that, yeah, clean energy and like clean technologies, they do have an intrinsic value commercially. Like they can really find the commercial pathway to spread. And that wasn't entirely obvious because a lot of other technology kind of just the reason why technology spreads is typically that it creates some kind of new value. Like, you know, a new iPad is better than the old one. So you want to buy it. But a lot of clean technology or like clean energy, it's actually doing just the same thing as the old <laughs> technology. So the power is the same. So there was this general sense that, okay, like this is a new technology market, but it's kind of doing exactly what other technology is doing. Does that really work commercially? And that's what Jigger and many other people in the US showed me that, yeah, you know, of course, there's a pathway to make this commercially relevant. Yeah, and the rest is history. I mean, that's pretty impressive. I mean, obviously, it was a long journey, I'm sure, but it validated basically your thesis or your doctorate, which then, you know, you basically applied that into the real world. You know, I have to make this company succeed because otherwise it's hugely embarrassing <laughs> having written the PhD about it. And then. And maybe you needed to go through the PhD to start the company. Maybe it was too early for third party ownership in Europe at that time. Yeah. You know? No, totally. And we all have our own pathways to be entrepreneur and also for myself, like maybe I really needed to kind of truly believe in the model and like see and really talk to other entrepreneurs that already believed in the model. Like maybe I needed that. Maybe someone else would have just found the confidence early on to just go for it. But for me, it became such a solid foundation for knowing that this company is very important. We have a very big and important task. Like I've never questioned that from day one of starting the company. And it's very much because I have all these faces and all these voices in my head of people who have truly convinced me and showed me through their actions how important this is and how well you can make this work. And I still try to surround myself with people like that. So someone like Pete Rive, who's one of the founders of Solar City, is still a very important advisor to us and to me and someone I talk to regularly to coach us in what we do. So it didn't stop like that inspiration and from the US market didn't stop being important as we started the company. It's just the opposite. It just stays relevant. Yeah, really, really grateful for that and for all those people who've helped me. Yeah, and that's interesting to hear your entrepreneurial journey and obviously having mentors and people who show you that the business plan could work, which basically yeah. is a game changer. It is. like It's the true engine of the energy transition. Like Ultimately, if we're going to have a, an actual energy transition globally, we're going to go away from burning fossil fuels to create energy and have a clean energy world, then that has to come out of something that is like organically growing market. It's the only logical way, unless we, you know, like go all in and some global dictatorships of clean energy orders from governments. But that's a strange future to think of. Like the only positive future we can imagine with a real energy transition comes out of turning it into true commercial, fast growing markets. That's it. I agree with you. And that's where that you'll see the energy transition happening even faster as solar, as a technology, not a fuel. And the price continues to go down and it becomes more efficient. So what trends are you seeing in the solar industry? I know you mentioned a couple, but is there any trends that you didn't talk about that you think 
I think a trend that's become very apparent over the last year is, is let's call it the onshoring of manufacturing in solar. So we've had this decade or two decades of offshoring in Europe, at least offshoring of solar, where solar just came out of China. That was it. Like the whole value chain is basically in China. And now suddenly everyone is thinking differently. Is it because of yeah COVID and the supply chain shortages? Is it because of the Xinjiang question? Is it just because like solar is so big now? I mean, it's probably all of those and maybe other factors as well. But seeing plans and ideas and actually fairly tangible proof of intense module manufacturing build-out, silicon production in Europe, maybe not quartz mining, but actual silicon production in Europe. And yeah, like multi-multi-gigawatt numbers. And this has been, I haven't heard a word about this for like 10 years, literally. <laughs> so that must qualify as a trend because <laughs> it's a trend. Yeah, that is a huge trend that I haven't actually heard about. And that's interesting. And that makes a lot of sense because we're seeing the same thing actually happening in the U.S. as well. In the U.S., I mean, at least you've had like First Solar is a pretty big manufacturer. Even if you've had some manufacturing, but in Europe, we've almost had none. Like I think someone told me like the actual operating manufacturing capacity in Europe for modules last year was 450 megawatts or something in a market building like 20 gigawatts. So it's a big, big shift. So, I mean, maybe that's like for me as a downstream developer, I'm not sure this means anything particular, but it's definitely a trend if you look at the industry. Yeah, what other trends? I mean, I've been telling you that storage is actually not really a trend. It's trendy, <laughs> but it's not a trend. Of course, it's going to be a trend fairly soon. It's going to be something that happens fairly soon. Yeah, I mean, that's what I pretty much can think of. I know we talked about this in the pre-interview. Everyone in the U.S. is starting to talk about, about green hydrogen and how it's... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, you know, hydrogen. <laughs> yeah, that has to be talked about. <laughs> It's necessary to talk about hydrogen. Whether we're going to build any hydrogen, that's a very different question. <laughs> let's yeah. leave the question, but let's talk about it. It's very important. I mean, joking aside, yeah, the whole power to X thing is being widely talked about. And maybe hydrogen is like at the forefront of that. But I'm honestly not seeing a lot of true deployment of that. But, you know, that could change maybe. Another trend in Europe is for you know, people to just really try to find a lot of varying use cases for regular PV. Like I'm not talking thin film or anything like that, but like regular PV, but like trying to do floating PV or like agriculturally integrated PV and putting PV on a landfill with some very particular racking. And I think people are just in a good way just stretching the use cases for normal flat panels. Which is logical, as we assume that the LCOE just keeps dropping despite some short-term bumps in the road. We just assume LCOE keeps dropping and demand is high. We have to put solar in all kinds of places. And you need some expert company on floating PV and you need some expert agri-PV company. So that is definitely a trend and it's going to just stay a trend, I think. Yeah, I think that's a great trend as well. Like just better land use and optimizing land and water, right? Flotovoltaics or floating solar. It's almost silly to talk about it as a, you know, as a technology because it's like, okay, you put solar on water, it floats. <laughs> 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 it's not rocket science. Like it's like literally not rocket science. But still, you know, you need to tweak a few things. You need new development models for it. You need some new racking. So it's still, you know, people will build companies around it and it's great. And it, if we make it work smoothly, and repeatably, then brilliant. We just keep opening up new deployment 
Definitely. I totally agree with you. This has been an amazing interview, Harold. If our listeners wanted to learn about you or the company, what is the best way for them to do that? Well, it has to be this podcast, isn't it? But at this point, they're through the podcast, so <laughs> they want the next level. Yeah, you can go to the webpage. It's alight-energy.com. You can look me up on LinkedIn and you can follow me on LinkedIn. That's Harold Overholm on LinkedIn. You can look me up on Spotify. There's a bunch of other podcasts I'm on. Again, this is the most solar specific. So you like the story from some other angles. I mean, there's a few other podcasts. So yeah, those would be the ways to learn more about us. Definitely. And we'll have this as well in the notes of the podcast. So they'll be easier for our listeners to find. And thank you, Harold. I really appreciate you brought a lot of great perspective. It's amazing, like the innovation that your company is doing. I'm excited to see what the future holds as more and more deployment happens. Yeah. Thank you, Ben. And thank you for having me. This has been a great interview, great conversation. And looking forward to hear all of your future episodes. Thank you. I appreciate you listening and offering to be on the podcast. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at R-E-N-E-U energy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangen and Kevin Y. Brown. 